Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me this week to break down our week in media and marketing is news editor Paul Woolbank. Hello, Tim. Our advertising and comms reporter Abigail Dawson. Hi, Tim. And Mumbrella's features and opinion editor Josie Tutty. Hello. And back after a seven-year hiatus, Mumbrella's CEO and my co-founder Martin Lane. It's great to be back. Today, we'll be chatting to Tribe founder and former Breakfast Radio presenter Jules Lund about how he fell into the world of influencer marketing. Right now, I'm founder of a tech marketing company, even though I don't know anything about tech marketing or running a company. My unrelenting scepticism about Jules' business model. And look, I'm really aware that you've been cynical since the start, but I want to get, I want you to rip it and pressure test me now. And the problem of making a profit in tech. You know, and I'm very happily got my head in the clouds. Yeah, you're a director, though. You must know whether you're going to make a profit or not. Yeah, well, we know. It's a tech company. You don't make profit. But first, to the week's topics. Martin Sorrell reveals his next move. Anthony Catalano buys a stake in Domain's biggest client. How a single tweet got Roseanne fired. Solo's box office flop. And Tourism Tasmania becomes a consumer-focused content marketing organisation. So we turn first this week to former WPP boss Sir Martin Sorrell, who at the age of 73 chooses not to retire. He's decided to go again with a new organisation. Abby, this is one you've written this week. Indeed, it is, Tim. Uh, As Sorrell alluded to at a conference in New York earlier this month, he is indeed back. And just as he said, it is looking like he will be starting again. Uh, A couple of days ago, it was reported that Sorrell has made a deal to take control of a shell company which specialises in medical technology called Derriston Capital PLC. But not only does Sorrell plan to lead Derriston Capital as its executive chairman, he's also intending to help the company acquire his own newly established entity, SC4 Capital, which I believe refers to four generations of Sir Martin's family. He's then planning to rebrand the company to S4 Capital. And what's interesting about the whole sort of shell company model is that was how WPP first started. You know, if I remember rightly, the WPP stood for Wire and Plastic Products, I think it was. And of course, it then became that, you know, giant conglomerate as he used that listed vehicle to acquire other things. So it, it does feel like, uh, you know, like, like he'd, he'd certainly like history to repeat itself. It's been reported that he will also be investing £40 million, which, if I am correct, should be around $61 million Australian dollars of his own money. Martin, what's, what's your take on, on, on Martin Sorrow? And I should probably share at this point, we once nearly got him to speak at a Mumbrella conference and Martin was driving in the car with me at the time. He got so excited he crashed it and gave me whiplash. And that's not even a joke. <laughs> it's also not even true. But, but, but anyway, leaving, leaving that aside, I, I think what... It's true. What fascinates, what fascinates me about, about this is, is I, I read a piece um, in Campaign when he, when he left... WPP saying that he wasn't sort of one of these kind of clubbable classic advertising people he was a bit of an outsider and that's what kind of helped him in some ways not really care what people said about him and just get on with the business of growing this massive company and 
you know, you kind of, first of all, you think 73, how can he be bothered? Um, and, and I think the answer to that is clearly he, he loves it um, and, it, and it's kind of in, in his blood. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in 20 years' time, when, when I finally get, get, get kicked out of Mumbrella, will I want to do it all over again? And the answer is probably going to be no. So, so you have to think that his motivations are, are, are because he loves what he's doing and, and not clearly he doesn't need the money. Um, and, and you wonder what else he'd be doing if he wasn't doing this. And, and, and the answer is, I can't think. I, I also read somewhere that he, he pulled out of a book about work-life balance because he, he realised he didn't actually have one. <laughs> and of course, um, you and I were at um, the Advertising Week conference in the US uh, last year, saw him speak there and actually interviewed on stage about somebody else who was writing a book about the industry, which is it's going to launch uh, uh, a little bit later this year, in fact, next month, I think. Um, what were your kind of impressions seeing him on stage? Well, well he, he always comes across as being, you know, so curmudgeonly and miserable, and, and and you know, you kind of wonder why he's why he's doing what he does. But he, there, there was a, a wonderful moment where I, I'll share this with our with our listeners that um, that Tim kind of put his hand up and asked a question. Hello, uh, Tim Burrows from Mumbrella. So uh, Martin slightly misinterpreted, four, four. And, and and Tim tried. The, the, the moderator actually explained the question again. But that, that was for digital companies. He was talking about digital. at which point. So Martin said, um, I'm glad you explained that, otherwise I would have been misled by Mumbrella for the thousandth time. ...record, because otherwise I would have been misled for the nth time by a Mumbrella question. <laughs> um, and there was some, uh, some other banter that went backwards uh, and forwards. Very harsh. Uh, no, not harsh, maybe harsh, but true. And I was sitting there with my head in my um, hands, and, and, and no, Tim I, turned I, around I to me afterwards and said, well, that put us on the map. So speaking as we are today about people doing the big comebacks, ex-domain CEO Anthony Catalano has uh, resurfaced this week. Uh, Paul? Yeah, Anthony Catalano, um, I guess he's very similar to Sir Martin in that um, he's a man that you can't keep down and... uh, and definitely he's coming back. So he's taken a stake in uh, Melbourne-based uh, property industry media agency called the Tomorrow Agency. It also has the name Media Plus. And uh, it's a creative and media agency for property businesses. So Anthony Catalano has probably been the most successful real estate marketing um, salesperson in Australia over the years, advertising salesperson over the years. Uh, in the past, he's left Fairfax and set up his own media organisation, which uh, then scared Fairfax into buying them for or uh, $35 million uh, back in the day before he joined back to Fairfax. He is the journo who made good, isn't he, by being entrepreneurial? Very much so. So you can't help but think that this is history repeating itself. And isn't there something about them being Domain's biggest client? That's right. So uh, that's what they're claiming as the biggest media agency client. But it wasn't a particularly amicable departure. So how do you think that's going to play? Well, I think this is going to be revenge as a dish served very, very cold. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're they're obviously still looking for the replacement CEO. A lot of that tension was between him and the chairman, Nick Falloon, who's kind of acting in the role. So it'll be very interesting whether this accelerates the process of putting a, 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 a new person into the mix who maybe things weren't quite as emotional for. Next, Martin's favourite topic, Star Wars. So Solo, a Star Wars story, as the official name uh, is, was, it could be said, a relative flop at the box office last weekend. Um and there was also a marketing event put on for fans that didn't fare much better. Um, it, it took $6 million at the box office, which, you know, was top for the week, but 
still not a big result. Uh, and also Mumbrella carried an opinion piece this week as well from a Scott Rodier. For, again, for long-term fans of the Mumbrella cast, you might remember uh, Scott was one of the original co-presenters, uh, still working in the word of comms and PR, and wrote a piece for us this week in which um, he shared his views about the disappointment of um, an, uh, a Star Wars promotional event he attended. Um, Josie. Yes, so Scott Rohde was given a ticket to an event in, I believe, somewhere near Sydney Park. Yeah, bought a ticket, I think. I think he actually spent actual well, dollars on it. Well, someone bought it for him. It was $77, oh. which is quite a lot of money for an event these days, He's I think. He's clearly got too much money. Yeah, so he went to the event, um, was very excited. He got to, the idea was you get to see the film three hours before everyone else in Australia. Um, he got to the event realized that he was going to have to stand around in a field for about three hours while they shone lights up in the sky um and recorded a thing the uh i believe what <laughs> I you're can't trying remember to say, what the millennium falcon yes, surprisingly i'm not a big fan so i don't know if that's coming across here yes um, there was sort of there was a drone flying above that was capturing image yeah. so the lights made the shape so, of it so was that was idea. okay but the thing that he re- really got him going was he was talking to some people in the queue and he realized that quite a high proportion of them were paid actors so fox have had paid the actors to come. There was about 500 people there. And he, I'm not entirely sure how he worked this out, but he was pretty certain that only about 100 of the people there were genuine fans. Now, which is which is kind of odd. And Martin, I'll bring you in on this, because uh, I guess you'd probably agree with me that Star Wars is the most culturally significant phenomenon of the last 40 years, do you think? So I was just going to say, was it $77 because Star Wars launched in 1977, do you think? No. <laughs> because that's not actually true, or, or I just don't think that's the reason. Okay, all right. Good, I, as, as, good, good Star, Star Wars, Wars knowledge. knowledge. <laughs> uh, as you know, Tim, I've never watched Star Wars. I'm never going to watch Star Wars. The reason I don't watch it is because I'm not a child. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm the last person to be sitting here on the Mumbrella cast talking about Star Wars. But. But I will anyway. Suppose six million at the box office, number one for the week, but you know, pretty bit disappointing. It knocked not Deadpool down to, to number two. Does it say something about a waning attraction, do you think? You do get the feeling that the studio is milking the Star Wars franchise. Uh, it seems every six to nine months we're seeing a new Star Wars movie come out. So there probably is a bit of fatigue there. And you wonder how those Star Wars tragics like Scott are going to continue to shell out $77 for their IMAX experiences and so on. So, yeah, we'll see when they do their next big production, I think, on what, uh, on how well the franchise is going to go. But, yeah, this one's a little bit disappointing. Now, Roseanne Barr has been in hot water this week after sending a racist tweet resulting in a show being taken off the air in the US and then I'm sure in the blow that really hurt off 10 here in Australia. Paul? Well, this is um, kind of in character, I guess, Um, and not really surprising. So uh, she tweeted out um, during what can only be described as a very ranty evening on the the interwebs, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby equals VJ. And she was talking about Valerie Jarrett, a uh, US presidential advisor. And this... um, 
naturally uh, caused a lot of problems for her. And uh, eventually the ABC network in the US took her off air with 10 following about 12 hours later, which was quite a blow for her uh, career prospects, yeah. I'd say. Do you, do you think it was easier for 10 based on the fact that it wasn't really rating very well? What, what sort of numbers was it doing? Oh, it was doing okay. I and mean, when it premiered on the 1st of May, it uh, made the top 20 with 463 uh, nationally. And uh, on the 27th, it was still rating 392, which for 10 is not too bad. It's not earth shattering, but um, it's bit reasonably reasonably well rated now she blamed uh ambien the uh the the the, the 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 product which i guess can't can't be that good for the product so this is a sedative that supposedly helps you sleep and uh, i did look up the um stated effects of them and they do warn it increases drowsiness and uh encourage you to sleepwalk and make meals at night uh, while you're asleep but ambien themselves were um quite um, aggressive in coming back saying on twitter while pharmaceutical product treatments have side effects racism is not a known side effect of any sanofi medication sanofi being the manufacturers of Ambien. Tourism Tasmania made the news this week after it announced um, a pivot to content marketing. Now, the Tasmanian tourism body is looking to overhaul its marketing program to become a consumer-focused content marketing organisation. That's in quotes. Um, The request for information, uh, which is sort of the invitation to agencies to put themselves forward, mentioned digital transformation and positioning. Um, Abby, what, what is it you think they're trying to do? From what I gather, they have said that they will continue to be doing the traditional creative campaigns and continue to have a um, a creative agency as such. But what they're looking to do is to have that always on cross-channel engagement with their consumers. So, Martin, your your heritage is very much in travel, former editor of Travel Weekly in the UK and over here. <laughs> In Australia, you, you, you're heavily involved in the program for the Travel Marketing Summit that we do. Where do you think thinking is evolving to in, 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 in how destinations market themselves or states market themselves? Yeah, look, I mean, I found it really interesting timing because, you know, Travel Marketing Summit is now four years old. And this year we didn't put content marketing on the program. Because we've been doing content marketing, we've been talking about native, and it just felt like it was so highly evolved, we didn't really have anything else to say. Now, when you also think, adding into that, that travel's been arguably doing content marketing for years and years and years, you know, every single travel journalist who goes on a, goes on a free junket and writes it up afterwards and says, you know, signing off from Bali is, is, is really doing content marketing. So, so it, it, it feels like, you know, an obvious move as part of a marketing mix, but but it doesn't feel like cutting edge in 2018 to me. This is the thing I don't quite get about because I'm, as you know, a massive fan of Tasmania. When I was there again last weekend, it almost feels like the more beautiful a place, the less good it is at marketing itself because maybe it doesn't need to try as hard. Yeah, and I think the the you know with Australia as we know, tourism Australia's jobs to get everybody here, and then all of the states then compete for for footfall. Um, you know, Queensland, Queensland arguably has a built in advantage because of the you know the, the the kind of Great Barrier Reef and all the other kind of iconic iconic places to go and the weather and all of those things. But actually, does some really interesting things on the marketing side, and the the story across the other states is a little bit patchy. Um, but as I say, I, I kind of, you know, you, you can you can kind of understand it as part of a strategy, but to kind of pin your mask to that particular thing in 2018, it was a bit odd. What would you do? If I was marketing Tasmania, I'd let them know that Tim Burrows is going to move down there. <laughs> Him and Ritson. 
It's it's where all the celebs live. <laughs> Marketer Mark Ritson famously lives just outside of Hobart. And it, I'm not saying it's a small place, but I am saying last time I flew into Hobart, Mark Ritson was the first person I bumped into at the airport. And he uh, he even gave me a lift into Hobart. So thanks, Mark. And that about wraps up today's news chat. Thank you, guys. I'll let you all get back to work. Thanks, thanks Tim. Tim. Thanks, Tim. Today's guest, a familiar face in Mumbrella House, the founder of Influencer Platform Tribe, Jules Lund. Jules, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's get straight into it. The story of Tribe. Now, my version of the story of Tribe from where I sit is that you you were one of the many, many people over quite a short period of time who was doing the Today FM breakfast. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, they, 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 as they did with many other shows, they, 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 they took the show out back to the farm. Yeah. Um, yep. But luckily for you, you were on a really lucrative breakfast contract yep. um, and you're able to kind of uh, sp- spend the, uh, the the months that followed kind of off the side <laughs> of your desk, scheming up a plan for Tribe. Is that, is that about the shape of how it came about? I would think so, yeah. That was, that was my opportunity to really... Um, I suppose be indulgent, and I had the um, the freedom to be able to invest in a, a stupid um, harebrain scheme. But it, it started a lot earlier than that. So for me, um, you know, obviously I worked in TV, but when I went into radio, all my ideas were visual, and um, apparently they can't see on radio. And so um, all my ideas were blocked and uh, the team said, why don't you just invest all of that OCD into our social media platform? So this is about five or six years ago. I didn't really have Facebook, Instagram or Twitter myself, but I invested into those platforms and, and our team was able to build the most engaged Facebook brand page in the country, the Fifi and Jules show. And I realized very quickly that that brand was almost as big as the radio show um, and it had a whole different type of audience. Up until that point i thought it was all superficial but i'd been i suppose a marketer at heart loved storytelling through tv or radio but then i realized hang on social they can talk back and so there was this amazing sort of depth of relationship formed and um Around that same time, a lot of the clients and, and um, media agencies for Southern Cross Australia are saying, how did you build this asset that is on the, the top of the um, leaderboard in the trade press? Um, this Fifi and Jules page ahead of KFC and Cricket Australia and politicians. And, um, and uh, I started to consult and go out and go, right, what do you guys want to do? And a lot of those brands and marketers were saying, well, on TV and radio, we could produce a piece of content and we could just roll it out on billboards or, you know, one ad can roll out on, on, um, on TV, for instance. But what we're realizing is everyone's staring at their phones right now and there's not like three or four networks um, that hold the attention of the masses. Like, you know, um, TV, you've got seven, nine, a ten, you've got a few radio channels um, for radio, but on social, it, the attention of the masses is held by millions of everyday people. So they were like, how do we enter those conversations? And so um, that sort of was the early stages of influencer marketing. And because I was engaging tribes then, um, when they started to figure out how to, I suppose, navigate this space, they started throwing money at me going, can you post this for Luna Park or can you post this for iSelect or Barocca? And I was thinking, shit, I'm making some money here. And 
I'm not even that, I don't have that big a tribe and my content's great. Like I was putting a lot of effort into it, but I was thinking there's people around me that are better. And so it was really about rather than sort of digging for gold, I thought, how do I start selling shovels? Now, the thing is, at, the, at, at that point, everyone's full of ideas, everyone's seeing the potential, yet something made you, firstly, the light bulb came on for the, the business model, but something made you actually decide to go for it. What Was there a single moment that made you think, actually, I'm going to give this one a shot? Yeah, look, I've wanted to give hundreds of things shots. You know, I'm 38. My whole life has been about sort of seeing the potential in areas and, and being an opportunist, I always try to grab hold of them. And my whole career has moved from interest to interest. Like I don't, I've been okay, but I started in graphic design, then I was a life coach and then I got into TV and I sort of just followed that. Right now I'm founder of a tech marketing company, even though I don't know anything about tech marketing or running a company. But um, I think why I thought this is the one is because of that opportunity where I, I, I had a wage coming in, I had a bit of free time um, and I, I was super passionate about it. But I also believe in it. Like the realisation that I had at that time was – um, it was around the tectonic plates of a global industry that I think are shifting towards creating a multi-billion dollar category. And I'm not talking about influencer marketing. What I really care about is um, using influencer marketing is almost customer-generated content. And so before we even launched, um, former Mumbrella editor Alex and I sat down in this very room October 2015, and he said, what is this tribe thing you hope to do? And I listened to that audio the other day, and it's the exact same platform. The only difference is I'm sitting there going, it's one big bloody experiment. There was no such thing as Instagram influencers then. So you were calling them bloggers or no one had a concept. And now it's like a $2 billion industry just in, what, two or three years. So my belief was it's heading in that direction. But for me, the FIFA Angels Facebook page hit the dust. So what I realized was, and this was a huge realization that I think has shaped our platform and why we're future-proofed and what we're working for is that there's two value propositions of influencer marketing. There's their reach and then there's their content. Now, everyone for years has been focused on their reach. So it's about working with celebrities, etc. I don't give a shit about that. I don't care about their popularity. I care about these everyday people, customers that are celebrating stunning content. Like that for me is real. Everything else, you're selling reach that the influencers do not own. And I learned that the hard way because I'd built this whole platform, this whole brand, FIFA and Jewels, on someone else's land. And then they changed the locks and an edge rank algorithm came in. And I said, there is no way I'm building a company on someone else's value proposition. Because I always felt that one day, why would you pay to reach an influencer's audience if soon the influencers themselves will have to pay to reach their own audience? Well, let's get into that world of influencers in a bit more detail very shortly. Um, wearing almost your your pitching to potential investors hat, if you had to explain the business model of Tribe, what is it? Well, we are a self-serve um, tech marketplace that helps brands find everyday people to celebrate them through beautiful content. Has that changed since you launched Tribe as the influence industry has evolved? No, but it's what it's done is we've listened to the market. So, um, and what the market has been telling us is that um, our brands um, 
are loving the influencer content that goes out on someone else's feed. But after a while, they're starting to say, hey, like for instance, Unilever, you know, they've run dozens and dozens of campaigns for us, um, you know, over the last couple of years across the globe. You know, they love that it goes out to someone's audience, but they actually want to purchase the content rights and to be able to drive um, uh, advertising in other channels. And so we created, we took some, we took two massive gambles at the start, right? And that was scary. The first one was when everyone else was rolling their sleeves up and creating sort of an agency model, tech enabled, right? We said, we're going to go the long way. We're going to raise millions of dollars and we're going to create a tech marketplace. The, the point being, if, if our tech can't do it, we can't. And we would say no to $150,000 campaigns early on. I could do it with a data. I, I could have done it with a spreadsheet to bring the money in, but I'm like, no, nah, that's not our model. So we're very disciplined about the threes and the fives and the $10,000 campaigns. And we built that tech and it's taken us two years. But the other thing was we said, it's not about reach, it's about content. And we said, we want to create a model where um, brands put in a brief and the content creators go out and buy the product because we believe if they don't own it or they're, or they're not willing to buy it, they've got no right to recommend that their tribe does, craft the content and submit it with no guarantee of getting paid. So obviously that's great for brands because it's safe. They see the content. And what we were saying back then is stop trying to go through a list and pick influencers. Let the influencers pick you and celebrate you um, before you have even made any commitment before you've paid a cent and so that was that was met on the influencer side with a lot of resistance like they were like uh, excuse me because at that time they were youtubers and bloggers they're going i usually get my bottle of moet sent to me before you know we've negotiated that's going to be 250 dollars. and here we are saying no go and buy it do a stop motion piece of content and then submit it and you're competing with others and everyone said that's not going to work and we just said well we believe that everyday people with 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 followers will be willing to collaborate with their favorite brands um, under those circumstances. And so from the very start, it was always about content. And so now we get $120,000 worth of content submitted every day through our platform, 120,000 bucks. So the content generation of this machine is we've got a surplus of that. And now that brands are saying, hey, we want to use that content in billboards, we want to use it in EDMs and blogs, then I feel those gambles have paid off. I remember chatting to someone who does make some tech investments early in Tribe's life. And what, in a nutshell, what he said to me was, what you've got here is, you know, one of the things you need for any tech startup is a charismatic founder. You've got that tick. You've got to be in something that's fast growing, such as the influence space tick. And often at that stage, you don't really have the business model it's going to be. And in this case, you know, he was arguing, it looks to me like this is not scalable. I think they're going to have to go out and find their business model down the track. That 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 was like one view from the mm. outside world. Is, is, is that a point of view you recognize? No. So if you have, like, if you ever listen to that interview, and I, that's why I listened to it, um, because in your best of the week, you said, uh, Remarkables, Lorraine, um, she's had to slightly pivot or move. Um, it looks like Tribe may have to do the same thing. Um, and I was thinking, what message are we sending to the market that 
And look, I, I'm really aware that you've been cynical since the start. So that's why I'm really excited about this. And I want you to really be, have a robust debate because I get to talk from a sales point of view all the time, but I want, to get, I want you to rip it and pressure test me now because I'm really excited by that because I want to understand those other Well, angles. let's start then. Let's, let's yeah. start with scalability. Yeah. With the current model, can you just scale and scale and scale? Yes. Profitably? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, it's like any tech marketplace. So we've, um, we obviously started in Australia. Um, we expanded into the UK and, um, I'm not sure what I can really tell you, but it is exceeding expectations with in 12 months, it has been about 2.6 times faster growth than the same time here in Australia. And um, we've got eight people over there and they've paid for themselves. So we are, we have just become portable in a whole region that is growing faster than Australia with very little investment. And when you say paid for themselves, as in that local operation yeah, is, because, is profitable? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, if it was, but keep in mind that our investment, like we've got 25 people in Melbourne, we've got another six here in Sydney. Um, you know, when you're building tech, that's the point. It's only about scale. So we have, um, God, we would have uh, 30% of our um, app downloads from America, for instance, and we're not even there. So we've been holding back regions and people are creating briefs, holding back regions because we've said, listen, we don't want to open the doors unless it's a really positive experience and we haven't got the brain power to think about that. But literally, it's about lifting. It's not about welcoming. It's about lifting the gate to say, right, what does a global platform look like? And, you know, that can, that can evolve in so many different ways. But absolutely, that is, it's got to be a global platform. It was, it was intended to be a global platform from day one. And keep in mind that, you know, it's a, in a digital world, I could pop off Chicago and, and just find brand managers um, through digital advertising and find influencers on the other side and create an ecosystem. So you're working presumably to an Australian financial year still? Uh, in terms of... You, you, you do your financials yeah. from July the 1st through to, yep. to June the 30th. So I guess we're three quarters of the way through the financial year. This year just gone, where, where is your biggest spending been? Has it been on the tech? Has it been on the people? The what, biggest spend? The biggest spend. Oh, what, it would where, be on tech. Yeah, without a question. I mean, we're a tech company. So... Um, yeah, I mean, our investment in tech is huge. We, ha we haven't done much in marketing. I mean, we went from – so to give you an idea, it takes – it's taken – it took like two years to get even the model, like the technology to be fluid enough. Like the amount of friction within it is huge and it's very slow building tech. And so we've been very lucky in that we've had a huge amount of growth even while we're sort of building the car we're trying to drive. Um, but you know, the last four months of last year, our, um, our whole revenue doubled like the, to, to what? Well, I wouldn't. Cause obviously those... from what and to what is a big, well, it is big for us. I mean, it, it was huge. It was enough for, um, investors to, uh, to come knocking. A six figure sum, a seven figure sum. I mean, are you in, uh, is, is the company revenue, not what's being spent on campaigns, but the company revenue, are you, are you in the millions yet? Um, yeah, we're in the millions, but it's it, it it's more around it's more around the fact that we were able to double all of that with no additional marketing or sales resource. That's the machine working. 
Do you know what I mean? Like that's what you're investing in. And the the value of where it's heading is about the extension. It's continually putting the focus on the content side of things. And as you can imagine, there's greater margins even in the content side of things. And also, you know, there's 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 a greater supply because almost everyone has beautiful content. Will you report a profit this financial year? Oh, look, that's a question for Anthony. My, my, Anthony being your CEO. Yeah, 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 yeah. To be honest, I mean, I it's like the clocks and clouds, you know, and I'm very happily got my head in the clouds. Yeah, you're a director though. You must know whether you're going to make a profit or not. Yeah, well, we know it's a tech company. You don't make profit. Like we, we won't be profitable. I don't even think Uber's profitable. Correct, or Netflix or yeah. many others. So that's not – I mean, in a high-growth industry, we're a tech company. Mm. It's not – we don't even see it through that lens. What's your route to eventual profit? Well, our route, um, to be honest, it's it's more around an exit. Like the, you build these companies to be able to, you know, sell them in, in four or five years. Um, I thought you were supposed to say we're here to change the world and we'd love to never sell. No. I, I don't have this stamina my whole life. I mean, I'll be involved in it, but no, I want to set it up so that people there's there's people out there that will be able to take it from another stage to a bigger stage and and do exactly as you say. I mean, my vision is very big for it, but I think it needs to outgrow me. Mm. I genuinely do. If the potential buyer says to you, "Okay, what's your vision for reaching profitability?" Have you got a picture in your head on on how the company can get there? Um. It's not about profit for us. Well, it has to be one day, doesn't it? Yeah, it if does. If you're investing one yeah, of day, course. you want the company to pay dividends, even if it's five yeah. years, ten years down the time. Yep. Um, look, that's a question for Ant. But the, the, the bottom line is if we were to tell our investors right now that we're on a path to profit, profitability, they would be gutted. I bet you're a big fan of Silicon Valley, the yeah. TV show. And, of course, the one <laughs> bit of advice from that is never start making a profit because you have to deliver a little bit more profit the next year. <laughs> well, the point is that they, you know, we've got investors in there that are part of, like, Airtasker, for instance. Um, you know, and these are high-growth companies. You look at the canvas of the world, Melanie and Cliff, and, and you know, we, we, we've just had an event with those guys. Um, this is the kind of the the – uh, the visual, um, yeah, it's, making it's, it easy to create. Basically, it's like work. you know, it's democratizing um, design. So the the ability, uh, I mean, everyone's got a passion, everyone's got a need for creating design assets, whether they're social or keynotes or invitations. But if you go into Adobe Photoshop, you, you realize that it's very. But I could be wrong. But I think Canva are now making a profit. I think, aren't they? I'm not sure. So, like, I think I I, I might be yeah. completely wrong. I think I read that in the AFR recently. Um, so you, you, I think the last kind of ra- sort of round of raising went public on, you raised something like 5.3 million. Yep. Um, how much of that have you spent? Um, we've probably spent about, um, half of it. And when I say spent, we've yep. invested. Sure. I mean, what we're doing is we're investing it in the tech and the tech is just getting more scalable and, and more robust with every day. So 30 or 40 staff now? I think um, 31 was the last I read. Yeah. So there'd be about 25 in, we've just, I mean, a lot of our offshore capability is moving from a, a support management team in Philippines. So full-time staff, I would say... Yeah, that'd be about 40 to 45. Okay. And we're scaling. I mean, the key with that environment and what we're investing in right now is is the executive executive level because we're really having to go from being generalists because, you know, the last two and a half years, 
we've everyone's rolled their sleeves up and everyone's been a jack of all trades and now we just you know we want some expertise and we can afford it and last question on the the, the business model well unless i think of something else or abby does um so doing my maths so let's say it's 40 people depending on what the average salary is let's let's be generous let's call yeah. it 100 grand that that's 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 four million a year um how long until you need to do another uh, round of uh, fundraising? Well, we continue fundraising. So, I mean, that's how we expand. So we did a, that round of fundraising that led us into the UK. That was your round A, I think they yeah, call it. Yeah, series A. And then um, I think over the next sort of 12 months, we'll be rolling out another um, another raise. And, I mean, we're always in discussions about raising and, you know, we get we get – call outs from different regions it's just a matter of what region we want to go into but you know the opportunities are huge especially now that we've proven portability through the uk and the success there we just recut our analysis exactly the same so last year we did 53 different regions to see where we should expand uk came out pretty high and Australia, which was awesome in the top five. China and the US are always there because of the social media ad spend. And so we're recutting it now. A lot of those regions have shifted. Some have plateaued. Some are growing. Um, the social media ad spend is increasing. And so what we're doing is exactly at the moment is going, which region next? And that's Series A, the way you raised the 5.3. What did that value the business at? Um, look, at the time, I'm just trying to figure out whether that's – um, public information but at the time i think the value was um around 18 and a half right okay so you you still own what a third of the business half of the business <laughs> or something or? I, I won't reveal that right okay yeah but you you would be the biggest single shareholder still though yep right okay yeah so um how how big do you think the business can get as a valuation um i don't know but um our focus at the moment is just to be able to um, uh, build the processes. Like right now, it's as much as it's about um, – because the technology doesn't have to shift. It just has to be optimized. Like we're really comfortable on – we haven't shifted any of our vision for the last three years since we started building. It's it's literally just about optimization of it. It is robust. It is working. And no matter how we pressure test it, we're still coming back to saying a content first self serve marketplace was the right answer. So let's um let yeah let's let let's talk about the actual product itself yeah. then. So I'm a marketer. Let's say I don't know. I work for a big multinational. I'm responsible for the the cereal, mm -hmm. um, and I'm thinking, okay, how can I tap into what Tribe offers? Yeah, what do I do? Well, basically, all you'd do is you'd jump onto the website and you'd start a campaign. And so you'd punch in a, um, a brief explaining exactly what you'd want. And it would take you about 10, 15 minutes. You'd put some mood board images there. And then you basically invite um, tens of thousands of your own customers to go out and buy that cereal. Um, they'll go out there and in their own tone and their own talent, they'll either do a boomerang, a clip. It could be a 90-second um, video, it could be a photo, basically whatever um, you as the brand managers ask for, you will now go into your inbox and you haven't paid a cent. There's no subscription, there's no minimum spend, and you will have an inbox full of stunning content. And when you press on each piece of that content, it will show you obviously the piece of content, which is the the, the pick or clip, it'll show you the price. So the, the content creator selects their own price because it's a marketplace. If it's too high, 
um, you can just decline it. If it's too low, well, you've just got to steal. It'll give you sort of engagement, their predicted engagement. Um, you'll see um, their 20% um, service fee from Tribe, which is how we make our money. Um, you'll be able to click through to the content creator's feed to see if that's the sort of conversation you want your brand to be a part of. And so typical, um, you would probably get 200 pieces of content in the first week. And so what you've effectively done is create a stock image library, but you have empowered your own customers to go out, buy the product, craft it exactly to your direction. So that could be, hey, I want that cereal to be on, a, on outdoors, so I want you sitting outside with the morning light. And, um, and basically, they submit it to you and you, you have no obligation. So if you like it, you buy it. If you don't, you don't. If you like it, you press approve and you can have pay as you go with a credit card or an invoice. And then that um, influencer gets a notification in their app that says, you know, do you want to post it in the next 24 hours? And they will get paid immediately. And um, the brand with no emails, no phone calls have just managed 200 micro influencers and send content up front. So and then we protect them across three different points from a brand safety point of view. So obviously the content up front, so you can see on on brand, we have this AVS, um, which is a audience vital sign scan, which is basically an algorithm that we launched at M6 a couple of years ago where we first revealed it. And basically we've been working on that and it's just an algorithm that measures the vital signs of every audience um, as soon as a social account is um, connected there's about 12 different points. So it'll be measuring for obviously um, whether that piece of content exists anywhere online. So if someone's ripped it from Pinterest, it'll block them. Um, if there's an unfair ratio or abnormal ratio between likes and comments, so if someone's bought followers, it'll be able to detect those um, historical spikes. So if they've had you know, 5,000 and then the next day they've got 10,000, we'll track that. And there's an, there's a, you know, eight or nine different inputs that it does. And then every account that's in our platform, it scans them four times a day to see if there's any um, any suspicious activity. And then it goes into a queue and then um, we're able to measure that. So for us, we were very exposed early on. You know, like I remember like Lorraine with The Remarkable, she would have 20. This is Lorraine Murphy. Yeah, Lorraine. I remember at the time they were the ones that I was looking at going, wow, we're, we're taking a risk here because they could sit around the table and say, these influencers are real. They've got good audiences. I'm familiar with them. I have dinner with them. Well, we had, you know, 2,000 within the first week. And so we went, we're exposed here. We can't vet them any other way than actually create something that is far more superior than humans. And so for two years, we've had two data scientists work on the on the machine learning algorithm. So, And then the third one is um, on the influencer level. So that's the content level, the audience level, and then on the influencer level, we have um, ratings. So it's just a five-star rating on their professionalism and activity within the platform. So, yeah. Predicted engagement, is that up to the discretion of the influencers or does Tribe have a way of measuring what the predicted engagement might be of a particular influencer? Well, basically, it's just based on their past history and their social feed. So you can, you can, see, um, you can see exactly the, the um, average engagement, the average likes um, that they would get on their feed. So it's pretty easy to predict what they're most likely going to get, which means that you can most likely predict their cost per engagement because you've got their cost there. And with return on, on investment for brands, yep. um, is that still a question brands are asking or wanting more structure around yep. when they're using Tribe? Is that Absolutely. something you have to explain yeah. often? You know, look, to be honest, 
honest, I, I think a lot of brands are still trying to figure out what is the return. So they don't know what to measure. And so um, very quickly you get into a um, you get into, I suppose, putting the cost per engagement under the microscope. So the cost per engagement is 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 very sim- simple. I mean, but it's only indicative and it's it's only a vanity metric because it's only based on likes and comments, but your actual impressions are never revealed. So for instance, you know, you could have thirty thousand, you might get 30 comments and 100 likes, for instance, but that doesn't mean that is indicative of all the people that have seen it because I don't know about you guys, but I don't like – I look at pics, but I don't like them or comment on them ever. Um, So – but that's – and that's under the microscope because everyone's going, right, what is the metric? What are the benchmarks here? But the the reality is that influencer marketing is not performance marketing. Instagram just isn't built that way. Um, The three metrics that do apply to influencer marketing – the first one is the cost per engagement. And really all that's measuring is the word of mouth. So if I was to take a piece of content and put it in my as an ad, I would get a bit of engagement, right, as an ad. So say KitKat. Here's a KitKat ad. I'm going to get a bit of engagement. If I um, collaborated with an influencer and they created a piece of KitKat content, I'm going to get more engagement. Because basically what influencer marketing is doing is taking a mass marketing message and it's making it more personal, like it's hand delivering it from, and and the reason why the audience mass marketing, you know, advertising doesn't really work is because we're competing with a lot of other ads. Whereas in influencer marketing, this audience, right, the influencer's audience, not only has invited that person's recommendation into their life, but um, because they trust what they have to say. But the actual piece of content is delivering an exact visual tone that we know they like, literally. And so cost per engagement or word of mouth is measured by the enhanced engagement you get from a piece of content that is given from someone you trust versus just a brand ad that you have no relationship with. So that's the first real piece. So you'd argue that micro-influencers are worth the time and effort for maybe a smaller audience that they have versus an influencer with more followers. Absolutely. Well, the engagement, and that's and that's born out of two things. The first one is um, Instagram will always reward everyday people of their, their users, right? So when I the reason I created a micro, and, you know, like when I launched it and I've spoken this podcast last time, I was, I was creating this category that didn't exist. I was calling them citizen marketers, right? Because there's no such thing, right? I was just like, yes, there's influencer marketing, but they're celebrities and pop stars and athletes. And that's I sort of had conceived that early on because I was like, I'm getting paid for this. Maybe, you know, the guys on Home and Away that I know, or maybe, um, you know, footballers will be able to do that. They've got big audiences. But I realized their content was shit, right? And so I then- With all due respect to the cast of Home and Away. No, no, they're all right. Um, but, you know, like sports stars, they keep reaching out going, oh, I've got this whole group of sports stars. And I'm like, no, thanks. Because they've got great reach, but they don't have the content. And so what I realized was for the price of one top tier influencer, not only could you work with 50 micro influencers, you reach the same amount of people with 50 micro influencers, you get far higher engagement because the smaller the tribe, the more potent the influence, right? So far higher engagement on all those 50 pieces. But then over here, you have 50 pieces of content to repurpose and put on billboards. Whereas over here, you've got one celebrity influencer. So that was, that's why I said it's about citizen marketing. But the reality is no one, no agency on the planet could go out there and have 
like thousands of micro-influencers to manage. To your point on creating multiple pieces of content that could then be repurposed, should creative agencies see the sort of model that Tribe has developed as a threat or no. a challenge to what they do? No, they love it. So, I look, Adam Ferry is on our board um, and, you know, I we travel the globe like Grey Worldwide. You know, they bring us in and Leo Raymond, who's the CEO of Grey Worldwide, you know, how he sees it and it's it's really – this is where it's moving. Those guys are under pressure because I'm going to go a bit weird here for a sec, all right? But I'm going to talk about the global shifts, what's happening, what we're really building, all right? So TV, radio, print, etc. you could do one piece of content, you could broadcast it, right? Um, Facebook, Google, and in fact, any modern marketing is about personalization. Their superpowers is in um, uh, targeting precise audiences with precise messaging. So I could deliver you a piece of ad, uh, ad content at a certain time where you are um, in exactly the tone you want. So like distribution has is being sorted. Marketo and AdStage and HubSpot. Like the world has na- invested so much money in technology that helps with distribution right? But the problem is the creative industry hasn't caught up. There's no creative solution for it. Because for us, like we we target brand managers, I can go in and say, right, here's, I, I, I'm going to I'm gonna create a beautiful ad for someone who's a fashion marketer. But then I have to create one for a sports marketer and then a food marketer and then personal beauty and then travel, right? But then that piece is great for a small business. But then I have to have one for agency marketers and then global brand marketers. And that's just static images, then I need to actually have six-second ads. I need to have cinemagraphs, 90-second ads. I need it to be vertical. And then I can't just nail that for six weeks or even six months and leave it. Like I could nail 300 pieces and just put them up there. Then ad fatigue sets in. So what's happening is consumers demand that not only is the, the marketing message now through social relevant, they expect it to be personal, but yet Brands are lagging so far behind consumer behavior because brands do not have any content. We've invested all the time in distribution, no time in having 300 ads. Creative agencies cannot keep up with the growing demand. This is my question because it feels to me like this is – I totally agree with everything you just said, but that to me feels like an existential threat for creative agencies. Well, here's the key. They need – why they love us. So Leo Raymond, I'll get back to that quote. He says, for us, it's about – it's like jazz. We start the beat, right? But how we see um, the customers is that they add their own sound and amplify the volume. They will always need their award-winning pieces of content. There, there is a limitations to the content that customers can create. They're not doing 90-second um, powerful ads. There's always going to be um, the almost like the red thread, the narrative, and there's actually people that can do it. Now, another, and this is switching topics slightly, but I want to cover as much ground as possible. The influencer space generally is still a little bit of a wild west, as it always yeah. is in, yeah. in a new space. You know, there are there are always anecdotes you hear about people buying followers, yeah. buying engagement, all of those things. Um, how do you make sure that you're part of the solution and not part of the problem with that sort of thing? Um, in terms of, well, the, the AVS is how we're part of our solution. Um but uh, in terms of how we 
I mean, we're I mean, we're not buying followers, so. How do we? Yeah, how for instance do you make? How do you, for instance, make sure that the the influencers you work with aren't buying followers? Didn't I explain that with the AVS? So the AVS, it will literally be able to say this guy red flag. Oh yeah, there. Yeah, we just block them. They've got uh, so for instance, you you have a certain threshold that says forty percent looks like bought followers. So absolutely. Oh no, not not, not even a yeah. Right. Like we are, we have we are brutal. Like we have, like you, you should read the DMs I get through my Instagram of influencers who are horribly offended, you know, because the reality is everyone attracts ghost followers. And what we do is we give them the opportunity. They have to go through their accounts one by one and block people. In the United Arab Emirates, they've introduced a government legislation where anyone um, participating in commercial activities has to have a government license. If that was brought here... Help or hinder the influencer industry? Um, well, I, I think it would be great. I mean, like the early days. I mean, if it's an easily easily accessible process, absolutely, it would take out the need for hashtag ad. But Instagram's already solving that. So keep in mind, most of these governments are years behind. You know, like where even the marketing industry is years behind. Like you know, often the panels that we talk about, we're still talking about transparency in hashtag ad. The reality is we we talked about that three years ago when we went to the ACCC and we said, hey, we want to protect our brands and our influencers, but more importantly, we want to put the consumers first. How do we make sure that they can clearly say that this this is a, a commercial relationship? And they said, we don't know. What's influencer marketing, <laughs> right? And so we said, we're just going to copy UK and US. It was never mandatory here, but we, in our platform, hard-coded the thing hashtag ad so that they could press hashtag ad really simply and put it in. And like almost it would be 90% of every post that goes through Tribe right now has hashtag ad. We can't enforce it any f- further than that because we are a, a, a marketplace. But the, rea- the reality is the reason why the ACCC hadn't intervened because they say we're waiting for a, a consumer complaint. Guess what? The consumers aren't idiots. Like we talk about transparency. None of them give a fuck. Like they, no one's complaining and writing articles. Oh shit! I went out and bought this um, Adidas shoes, and then I realised that the person who promoted them to me wore Nikes as well. Like, there's not. Is this? See, I, I do sometimes wonder this. Are we because it's journalists who write about this stuff who've come up through a culture of you must disclose everything, church and state, all of these things. You make a really good point. I, I, I do sometimes think that kind of journalists myself included are kind of howling at the moon a bit and as you say the consumers actually don't give a fuck well no they see it they know it like government and even trade press we're caught up on this transparent i don't care like i want to talk about the excitement and what's possible the conversation of transparency is a is a is a it's 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 past we're almost out of time yeah. but i do want to get this uh, perhaps final question in um where next for the influencer space and for Tribe? Where next for the influencer space? There's, it starts to run two races, in my opinion. Like there's the the reach and then there's the content side of things. As I said, those two value propositions. We're investing in the content side of things. But influencer marketing, as soon as Instagram starts to release insights and better measurability, which they will do. And the reason why they'll do that is because they need collateral to free up the bottlenecks of brands not spending money on Facebook because they don't have 300 ads. And so the next stage of taking that content 
and and using it as a crowdsource creative and to, and to almost lead to a point where the world's advocate well i believe that the world's advertising creative can be generated by the very consumers it's designed to engage and that's where creative agencies i think are starting to realize shit you know i'm going to do the ad but then imagine i could offer my client 500 pieces of content around it that is um, the left-right hook. That seems to logically suggest, and this comes to the where next for Tribe, that if you get bought by someone, it could be by one of the big um, communications holding companies. Well, it could be. I mean, any from from an exit point of view, I mean, we've got to live out our vision. And living out our vision is exactly what I just said. It's unlocking the world's creativity to be able to create a marketplace where brands, whether they're the corner store or they're a global brand, can put a brief in there and their own customers going, I love you. Here's some content of me showing that. For a couple of hundred bucks, you can have it and put it on your um, menu. Jules, thanks for your time. No worries. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Jules. And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. Toodle pip. Today's guest, a founder and uh, well, should I get my facts right? Did no, I, to be I honest, don't even actually know. Are you, are you the CEO? Or is Anthony no, the CEO? Right, Anthony's okay. the okay. CEO. Right, That's okay. a good question, though. Okay, right, we'll do that the other <laughs> day. Okay. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. Uh, with us today, the co-founder of. No, I'm the founder. <laughs> He's the CEO. <laughs> so, okay, I'm founder. He's CEO. Yeah, I just know we're going to end up using this all as outtakes <laughs> at the end as well. Okay.